Hey, welcome to Lunch for the Wrestling episode 244. The podcast that tries its best to insult everybody in the enterprise space while staying pure to the end user themselves. My name is Jordor Geek, and this podcast is brought to you by John, and I already forgot, Spizzari, uh, a longtime supporter, longtime contributor to the Podnuts ecosystem. John, thank you very much for the support. Ever since November the 19th of 2017, John has went out of his way to go to patreon.com slash podnuts and support this network. And talking about support this network, we have, as always, the honorable Bruce Patterson. How is everything going, Bruce? <laughs> Everything's going pretty well. How about yourself? I'll say this. Everything in my life is focused around the COVID. I'm a mobile phone guy. Google and Amazon and Apple are talking about putting tracer applications to trace the COVID everywhere we go. I'm also a mini PC guy. Mini PCs are literally devoting every abundant resource to folding at home, which has now changed, setting at home, which has now changed, all to the COVID. Linux, everything Linux, even the Debian um, drive to code contribution has changed to the COVID contribution. Uh, everything in my life has changed to be COVID-focused, except for my family. My oldest kid has his own unique interest, has nothing to do with COVID. My youngest kid will not stop watching a guy on YouTube, which I don't expect you to know, called Matt Pat, and he's like sucked in on game theories and movie theories and FNAF, Five Minutes at Freddy's theories. And all at the same time, my wife cannot stop watching extreme leftist comedy routines about how Everything is wrong in America today. While I try my best to remain focused, centered, non-biased, and enjoying everything I had today because I'm an introvert and I love staying at home and working. I don't know about you. Well, I look at it this way. I just came off of a marathon binge watch of the entire uh, series of Sopranos. So that's done. And I've done my taxes. Now I feel like I need to go out there and whack someone because... The money that I'm getting back from the federal allows me to get, I can't even buy 33 candy bars with what I'm getting back. I can buy maybe 25 because they're like a dollar 30 now, right? It's ridiculous how much normal snack cost, but I will say this. I'm not going to say I'm blessed because I'm not. I'm not going to say I'm lucky because I'm not. I have quartered myself and my wife into certain jobs to where we still get to work 40 hours a week and get paid 40 hours a week. And everything I do now is a purely American thing. I give at least 50% to 100% tip on everything I do. And every time I do, the people who receive it are like shocked. And I tell them, if it wasn't for you, I would have to bore my family with my cooking. So thank you. Well, on that note, it's funny because, you know, most of us are probably using some form of delivery service for groceries at home. Uh, I've been using Instacart, and I think the only thing that's right is at the very minimum, you should be considering the upper boundaries when it comes for tipping because these people are doing something that 
I'm not going to do because I have people in my house that have uh, pre pre-existing conditions and all I need to do is invite that virus into the house and it's game over. So I'm appreciative of the folks who actually put themselves out there and go shopping, you know, on our behalf, because to tell you the truth, again, uh, it starts off at a minimum of $20 for me for that, for that service and anything else above it, you know, you just pile on as, as the bill gets a little higher. Is it a little more expensive than usual? Yeah, it is. But like I said, I'm paying somebody for my convenience of remaining somewhat safe while they go out there and do this. So I'm very appreciative, and that's where you'd certainly overtip. Grubhub, on the other hand, uh, I don't know where to start with that. I've ordered from two places in the last week, a Chinese place and a pizzeria place. Regina's, of course. Those two orders have cost me 100 bucks. So just keep that in mind, too. Sometimes you're paying a little bit more. Well, and I'll say this, being a, a first worlder, living in the first world, I don't mind paying more for things because it's the convenience factor. And that's one of the things that, honestly, Steve Gibson taught me six years ago. Convenience and security are on the opposite ends of an unbendable pole, and the two ends will never meet. You're either going more towards convenience or you're going more towards security. And everything we do in life, we have to decide, are we going to be more convenient or are we going to be more security focused? Because the two will never happen. I have to share this link. And the only reason I'm sharing this link is because I was shocked to find in the quote unquote real world um, open source ideals. And I hate using that word because I feel like I'm an utter, um, uh, I'm an utter like, social justice kind of person when I say this, but I'm going to say this anyway. I love when open source ideals meet the real world. And it was a link I shared with you called the Coronavirus Tech Handbook. And it's really difficult for the person who lands on this link to comprehend what's going on. Here's the gist of it. Somebody started a Google Doc that they wanted to share everything they possibly could. Good bad and indifferent about the coronavirus. Not only like what preparations can you do as an individual to protect yourself, not only the results set from people doing individual scans on individuals, but also what kind of files can we share to others to 3D print? Not it, not only what kind of health workers are at most risk, but who are at least risk as possible. I love when open source ideals infiltrate into other ecosystems. And this to me is a perfect example of open source ideals of being clear, being in the open, and being free for anybody else to modify has worked itself into other arenas. And there'll be a link in the notes to the coronavirus tech handbook. And if you would like to participate, if you would like to even just visualize what other people are seeing in the open arena, not in the arena of the media, not in the arena of federal government, not in the arena of anybody claiming they know everything, but in the arena of open source ideals, I beg everyone, check out this document. Now, do you actually have to have an account to see this stuff? Because I clicked on it and it's not showing me any of this. You do need to have a Google account to be able to view it, but any Google account will work. 
I have multiple fake, in air quotes, Google accounts. Um, and as long as you are logged into any of them, you'll be able to see it. And then once you're able to see it, there is a link that you'll be able to click to be able to download to your local drive. All right. I think I'll wrestle with this after the show. Well, I'll just put it like this. Everybody in the world is lying to everybody else to push their own narrative. Some of the narratives are more accurate. Some of the narratives are less accurate. I'm not going to tell somebody which is more true and which is less true. You should do your own investigation to derive what you see as being more or less truthful. My belief is this coronavirus tech handbook is the best I've ever seen in trying to remain absolutely neutral and just provide facts and data sheets and measures that anyone can take. Because here's the thing. I have a child 15 years old with an autoimmune disease. If anybody should be overreactive, it should be me. I also know that the media has a uncanny ability to take fear, uncertainty, and doubt and ride with it to the extreme because it means more clicks. Which is right, which is true, which is wrong, I don't know. I just know that when I read this coronavirus tech handbook, it seems to me that seems to be the most independently verifiable, independently audible, independently honest source I've ever witnessed on this kind of thing. Now, this brings up a question, and this is this impacts more than just this particular document. I'm actually kind of curious overall, at what point do we reach critical mass in the white noise that's on the internet. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because I long left the responsibility of honest reporting to larger newspapers, you know, the New York Times, the LA Times, the Post, the Times, whatever. Uh, the short of it is simply this. Um, as you get older, uh, you learn that, you know, maybe the sources aren't as accurate as they used to be. Um, Everybody has an agenda one way or the other, you know, and I think what we are now at a point is that we're getting to the point where science is now being muddied. And I would like to think that there would be, if certainly not uh, a coalition of, of scientists, at least some highly educated folks that are just about the actual business of science and nothing more. You know, um, and, you know, because the sites, you can do your homework and you can read just about everything you want, do your due diligence. But when the day is done, you need to really question all of your sources. Yeah. And I really appreciate you using the word agenda because the people who insist they don't have an agenda have the biggest agendas, period. The idea of completely unbiased news never existed. People like to think and believe back in the 1800s, back in the 1900s, back in the 1700s, we had true unbiased news sources. And the honest to God, the truth is we've never had unbiased news sources. We only now have news sources that at least proclaim their biasness. And you, as a participant of that content, you should at least acknowledge the biasness that exists. Now, that's stated. Um, I 
hindsight is 2020. Anybody proclaiming any facts right now will appear stupid in three months, in six months, in nine months, in three years, in 20 years, because hindsight is always 2020. We as a population can only be reactive up to a certain point. It's good for mental invalids, the people who are unconscionably stupid, which is almost 50% of the population of any country or any habitat. It's good for them to fear anything, whether it be close or software, or whether it be the end of their lives. Because if they don't fear those kinds of things, then they're not going to react to it. Um, only a small percentage of people are, I think, able to actually intelligently deduce what to worry about and what not to worry about. I became complicit in being completely okay with new resources claiming everything is the end of the world. Because sometimes it takes people to say that to get other people to react. Whether it be this is the end of privacy or this is you're going to all die. Because sometimes it takes that kind of statement. And dare I say, I almost understand RMS a little bit more with all the things happening today. Because he was an extremist who claimed we're all going to die because privacy is now at its end. There's an interesting uh, rebuttal to uh, the the age old. Um, I don't have to worry about my own privacy because I've got nothing to hide. So this one speaker goes, okay, here's what I want from you. I want passwords to all your email accounts. And after I get the passwords, I'd love the ability to just go through your emails. I'm interested in the things that you do day to day. And to this day, not one person has been willing to give up their passwords this way. Um, so, yeah, I think people miss the point when uh, we talk about privacy and that I've got nothing to hide. That That's not the point. You have constitutional protections there and you should exercise them. But um, they've become so watered down over time. I'm not really sure where we even stand with half of this stuff anymore. Well, everything is in transition. Perfection is unobtainable. Perfect privacy will never happen. At the same token, perfect ubiquity in communication with everyone will also not be obtainable. We have to constantly play this dance with everybody else, with governments and with individuals. Um, I've been using meet.jitsy uh, a lot of times during the last couple of weeks to hold, in air quotes, private communications with multiple peoples, and it's been unbelievably good. I've had multiple doctor's appointments with my oldest son, who has the autoimmune disease, and myself, where my doctor said, I require immediate surgery. And then the other people said, it's not going to happen till July. So I medicate myself as I see fit until then. Um, and we have to use these unbelievably insecure tools like Zoom to communicate with those people because they don't understand security. They don't understand how to be secure. Um, intelligence is perspective. I think I'm smart at X. And it secretly turns out in the grand universe of things, I'm only smart about 1% of the things that I actually think I'm smart with. 
everybody else that I swear are stupid are actually smart about some things. I just can't see it because of my bias. Um, I've tried my best to try to share open technologies with everybody in the last X number of weeks because I do believe that open technologies are, by default, more secure than closed technologies. I don't know if I'm right, but I believe I'm right. Man, I'm sorry about that. I dropped out a little bit. Um, so in response, I think what I'm really looking at, um, the openness of Zoom has actually you know, they started to address that. Uh, there was an article last week, uh, I think in ours, where uh, the CEO of Zoom acknowledges that mistakes were made. And now that they're focusing on security, uh, I imagine that stuff will be tightened up. But again, it's, it's, it's just, oh, I'll start. It's interesting for the fact that Zoom was wide open when uh, they released it as a product. And, you know, it reminds me of old Red Hat when they used to, you know, open it up here. All the ports are open. Do what you want. But then all of a sudden, it's like everything else. Once the water started running in, everybody started inviting themselves in. Um, I think that over time, it's, you know, the consumer has always driven these products and they'll continue to do so. Um, but. One side note I want to make in regards to, and this is a non sequitur, this past week was uh, Azure Global. And this was Microsoft's attempt uh, at running a community event. And I got to tell you, what shocked me about it, it really was pretty close to a community event as I've ever seen, maybe even rivaling some of the Linux events. It was very, very collaborative and, dare I say, open. The source isn't, but everything else was. Well, every company, and I say this, I try to be very careful about this. Every company who reports on any stock market index has to be more open than closed. They know, because I hate to say it like this, Bruce, but open source has already won. The old adage in the Linux world, and if you've been listening to the last podcast for any years, is, and they all like cry like little children about, oh God, won't you think about the children? In the same token, oh God, when is the year of a Linux desktop going to happen? And they can't stop like literally gushing over it. Same thing about open source software. The dirty secret is open source software has already won. The year of the Linux desktop actually already happened and we didn't even know it. Open source is what every closed source corporation shoots toward because if you're not open source friendly, is the word I'll use, then you will lose. You will lose an insane amount of support. You will lose an insane amount of people just willing to put code towards your project. So even people like Amazon, even people like Apple, oh, I said it. Apple, even people like Google will go out of their way to make sure that all of the code that they push in whatever container format is open source friendly because they know if they don't have that nerd sitting in their basement with their mom upstairs screaming, when are you going to put on deodorant? When are you going to shower? If you don't have that guy's support, you might as well not even exist because those are the guys that literally 
figure out how everything works and they literally figure out how to do things that no one else ever imagined as being even possible. But they're doing a really good job of keeping their core stuff tucked behind a wall in this closed source ecosystem. Microsoft, Amazon, and Apple literally need to be like, like stand it up and awarded some kind of medal. Because when they keep things closed behind a wall, they've done such a really good job with it. At the same time, giving the complete journalist, incompetent people fodder on the open source arena at the same time. Because open source has already won. And every year, marking past 2019 and forward, open source will only become more important as every day ticks on. Well, I think a big part of it also was the man who's running the show for Microsoft, too, because I think he understands technology in its current state. And it's because of the moves that he was making that have actually welcomed Linux into the Microsoft ecosphere. And I think with that, that is where a lot of changes will happen for the better, I think. And as we've pointed out, or more accurately, you've pointed out, is that it's over time where the infection is now in place. And it's only a matter of time before the Linux code actually starts to override what is in Microsoft. Well, and every ecosystem right now is actively prog programmatically debating with itself. How much do we give up? How much do we keep secure? How much do we give? How much do we take? How much do we push? How much do we pull? Microsoft is, thanks to Sadia and his CEO prowess, he might be the most epic guy who's ever existed in managing that dance. That, And dare I say, quoting Jack Nicholson in Batman, have you ever danced with the devil by the pale moonlight? Sadia is dancing with the devil in his mind, open source. He's dancing with that devil so good. He is doing the best out of any CEO. And I say that while I've literally read, in air quotes, uh, 60 plus hours of the current, the new, the Red Hat CEO. And damn it, I can tell you right now, Bruce, the Red Hat CEO might be the smartest guy who's ever been in charge of anything open source related. And he's still maybe 20% as smart as the guy in charge of Microsoft right now. So I'm going to keep doing everything I can to support the guy in front of Red Hat. I'm going to keep doing everything I can to support everything regarding Red Hat. Unfortunately, it's IBM I'm supporting as well, which hurts, which literally hurts the cockles in my heart. But the guy in charge of Microsoft has more open source charisma, is the word I'll use, than almost any open source project that exists to this day. So I think with that, we will segue off to one of the stories that you had listed in um our massive or extensive links list uh, among them was uh, Debian announcing they're dropping a number of uh, old Linux drivers because that brings up another uh, heated debate. And so bottom line is that some of these uh, video drivers are well over 20 years old. And the question remains, why are you using a machine that's 20 years old that needs this Linux driver? 
Yeah, and one of those archaic, I don't want to say arguments, but one of the things that people used to tell other people was you can use Linux because you can use it on old hardware. No, um, and they were right. You could use it on old hardware, but that comes with a certain price. Um, Debian is the most rock solid, the most stable, the most friendly thing to old hardware. And when Debian says it's time for us to start to deprecate, and I hate using that word, but, but it's the correct word. When Debian decides it's time to deprecate old hardware, guess what? You should relinquish your driver support for old hardware because it's been too long already. Debian is the most liberal, and I really use these words extremely carefully, is what I'm going to say. Debian is the most liberal distribution when it comes to dropping support. So if Debian decides it's time to drop support, what that means is every other thing that's ever existed in time has already dropped support. I hate to say get over it. Get it. And if you have 20 year old hardware, don't expect security updates and download a 20 year old distribution and install on that 20 year old hardware and then make do with what you have because you're not going to get support from Debian anymore. Well, and again, I, I think the thing is, is that that would be the least of your worries because. If that hardware is 20 years old and you're having problems with, you know, the uh, the drivers for video, you have to be having other driver issues too. You know, whether it's the wireless one, what are you using for a file system? Because I'd imagine that that's going to be jumped up as well. So um, anyway, uh, I used to be in that camp of, you know, I run Linux because of old hardware, but I mean, my machines are not that old right now, and what I have should last me for the rest of my life at this point. But, um, you know, again, uh, I think it's time to upgrade that piece of uh, hardware that you have in the corner there and uh, time to move on. But it's interesting, too, because one of the other things I'm curious about, when you have developers for... Debian, as an example, you've also got developers, you know, working in CentOS and, you know, these other distributions, you know, the code is out there for people to take and share. Um, but again, is that really happening? And, you know, and this is the this is the final time I'm going to mention this, uh, the role that I think the Linux Foundation could play in all of this. When it comes to being one source of information, you know, it's all right. So we have this GitHub of all these avenues and all these devices. You can break it down into categories, you know, audio, you know, word processing, et cetera, et cetera. The fact of the matter is, is that, you know, all right, make your independent code. That's fine. But keep it in the same realm or same uh, folder structure which then I believe other folks can feed on because I still don't think that the development of these independent Linux distributions are anyway efficient. I can't believe that. You know, there are some 
uh, repos that have, uh, I'm sorry, some distros that have the advantage of being downstream from like Red Hat or some of the larger companies, but a lot of them aren't. And so I've always been curious what that looks like behind the scenes. And I guess maybe that's what homework is all about. So I think along with the the diatribe that I had in um, uh, the video drivers for Debian, that actually should segue into Asus uh, releasing graphics cards that could be actually great for open source NVIDIA fans um, in terms of their gaming or driver yeah, stack. I'll say, and I said this in another podcast, and it's hard to really convey. And it starts like this. Is a human life worth nothing? The answer should be obviously no. Is a human life worth every monetary thing that's ever existed? The answer should be no as well. Where you draw the line how much a human life is worth is subjective onto you, the human being. Same thing with this driver support. Nobody should proclaim they know the exact answer to how long anything should be supported. But I will state this. Debian has proven time and time again to be making what they perceive as being the best choice for all parties. And if Debian says it's time to drop support for something, then damn it, get rid of the hardware. Call me up, 443-640-8960, and I'll give you money to buy new hardware. Because it's about time you buy new goddamn hardware, period. Okay. Now, uh, the next link you mentioned, Bruce, um, let me find it in the notes. Yes, this almost made me giddy. And I lie to everyone saying it made me giddy because it almost made me giddy. Here's the bottom line, okay? We in the Linux world have been subjected to unbelievably bad driver support. Ridiculously old driver support. And ASUS is promising they're going to come out with a video based on the open source NVIDIA driver that will cost less than $50 and will be able to support the open NVIDIA uh, driver stack, which I can never remember what it's called, Nouveau, N-O-U-V-E-A-U driver. Here's the dirty secret. You could be able to buy this sub $50 video card and play, which was two years ago, a two to $300 video card gaming experience. I hope this is right. I hope this is true. I hope this comes to fruition because I hate to say it like this, but games have been the borderline between the extremists, between the bougie, between the have and the have-nots for decades. And if ASUS can come out with this sub-$50 video card, I will happily buy it for 100 people in a year. If it means friends in Indonesia, friends in Africa, friends in Siberia, friends in Serbia, friends in Brazil, friends in all kinds of corners of the globe could partake in what we in the first world consider to be fun gaming experiences. I will happily, happily, happily lose income if this actually becomes real. There'll be a link in the notes. Veronix put out the link to it, and it's the ASUS 
a GT710-4H-SL-2GD5HS. Rolls off the tongue, but it's supposedly a video card that's going to cost less than 50 bucks. Literally compete with video cards from like two or three years ago. And that's phenomenal. I mean, I haven't been one on, on graphics cards, but, uh, you know, again, uh, if this keeps on going, I might actually use... Uh, uh, convert this into a gaming rig and make that my end game. <laughs> I could I could use thirty dollars, thirty thousand a year playing for a video yeah, company. Token, I'll say it like this: every company has done whatever it's taken to maximize profits. But ASUS has put out more than a couple of things in the last couple of years, which I firmly believe is not profit driven, but it's end user comfortability and user usability driven and this seems like one of those things honestly i have no problem with devoting a certain percentage of my income every year to any company that provides hardware more open hardware more free software more free hardware to more people and asus seems to be one of the companies actually trying to do that so i guess my question is is that as these improvements are made on video cards I'm kind of curious. So how does that impact the Bitcoin community? Dude, you just hit a nerve. Um, I'll say it like this. I firmly love the fact that Bitcoin is extremely undervalued and under-promised. Um, More than a couple people that I believe are really honest proclaim by the year 2025, Bitcoin will hit a million dollar market cap and will change the world you know like bill nye change the world i don't think they're accurate but i do think bitcoin will by 2025 serve a certain percentage of populace and become really important to them um i hope to make enough money off of that to where my children don't have to stress or strive because i love my children but when i directly interact with them they're idiots <laughs> well, I guess at this point I'll have to create a tower on the side. I know somebody in the uh, podcasting world had tried to create a uh, a Bitcoin making machine, and after a while they were just finding that this was burning far more electricity than it was actually worth the price of the uh, quarter of a Bitcoin they were mining every yeah, week. You live in an area where energy is cheap, aka literally you live right next towards a hydroelectric dam and you get your power for nearly for free then it's um then it's the cost benefit analysis is great in your favor but if you have to pay normal in air quotes energy cost bitcoin is not what you should be doing now you should then in turn be moderating the bitcoin market and buying when it's at its lows then you'll be making money hand over fist only if you're willing to wait the length of time. So that's the one thing. I have multiple people that I know who literally worked for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac for like 20, 30 years. And they were the ones that told me you have to be willing to invest money and then watch it disappear for 20 or 30 years because after 30 or 40 years, it will start to make money again. And then if you're okay with losing money in the short term, you'll be sticking rich in the long term. Uh, and two of them are right now boomers. 
you know, they're 55 to 65 years old. And they told me it took a lot of patience and a lot of um, the ability to watch everything be destroyed in front of you and not overreact. And now with things coming back, they were able to actually make money. And it's the same thing right now with this Corona thing. If you have any extra income, invest because you will make 10 times the amount you invest in the next three to five years, unless you're, of course, on under three to five years from dying. They said if you're like 68 to 72, just enjoy yourself now and spend your money. But if you think you can live another 10 years, invest your money because you will see it like unbelievably duplicate and triplicate over the years. Well, I am surprised at some of the prices I'm seeing. For example, what is it? McDonald's right now is at $117 a share. <laughs> that and the fact that Wendy's also is uh, actually more affordable around, I think they're right at $11 a share right now, and they've seen a high of 23 So uh, I just don't trust myself with that kind of money. And quite frankly, I'm not sure we've actually hit bottom, but that's Absolutely. for another we day. Have, we have not hit bottom. It doesn't mean certain sectors have it which means it will be a perfect time to invest. And I am not a gambler, nor am I insistent that I know what's best. Uh, but I'll say this. There are certain companies in open source. There are certain companies in software. There are certain companies in service-driven industries which will make a killing in the next six months, the next nine months, the next 12 months. And if you're a gambler, you could do so much good for you and your future offspring that it would be really beneficial to you to gamble it. Me, I'm not a gambler. I have no problem in working myself to the bone for the next 30 to 40 years because I gain satisfaction from getting things done. I have no problem telling my kids, telling my wife, nope, sorry, you gotta work because I didn't make enough money because there's nothing more beneficial than going to sleep at the end of day in a certain amount of pain, in a certain amount of anguish, in a certain amount of distraught because you work so hard during the day to help others. I'm okay with telling my kids at the end of the day, you know, I was able to give you like 80% of the food that you earned today. You're gonna have to work for the next 20%. Good night, kids. And then for the next 20 years, they're gonna have to work their butt off because that's what is honestly normal American infrastructure. Oh, it absolutely is. But also the work environment, it's going to change significantly. You know, um, I'm really curious with the unemployment being what it is. Now, this, we're gonna go back just a quick way with the Clinton administration. One of the things that rescued that, that economy during that time was the small businesses. You know, and most of those small businesses are probably being wiped out as we talk, as we're talking now. Um, but when we come out of this, I think what we're looking at is a couple of things. Uh, I'm worried about a, a proposed bill that wants to give Americans $2,000 a month from here on out. You know, it's that's. That's I'm a little concerned because what are we going to become at this point? Are we are we turning into some kind of a bizarre communist state? Uh, because that money's got to come from somewhere. 
the other thing I'm worried about is I think gig workers will become more of a common thing, which means part-time folks who have no health care whatsoever and no potential for very much else after that. Um, housing will come down a little bit, but uh, again, there there should be some real concerns here. And, you know, maybe you took uh, a pandemic like this to show us how frail our economy really is. I can't say you're wrong with me. I'll say it like this. I personally believe in basic income. I am perfectly okay with spending 20 to maybe 40% of my day working towards the benefit of others. Universal basic income. Um, I believe everyone should be awarded the benefit of not having to produce everything every month to every month to every month to every month. I believe there's enough people who live in the first world that make enough extra money that they could easily support the other people. I'm worried in the fact that I've never seen a circumstance where people get something for free and they don't value it. 99% of the time when anybody gets something for free, they're perfectly content with completely pissing it away and watching it degrade in front of them. With that stated, I believe education can be the barter between universal basic income and people actually understanding the gift of giving. Um, I've spoken to at least 20 people, Bruce, in the last two weeks who've lost their job because of all this Rona stuff going on. I've given easily, oh God, in the last month, I've given at least $3,000 of my personal income to people to try to make their lives better. I wish that my government did a better job than me in supporting everybody else. Um, because I'm, I'm perfectly content with paying taxes. I'm perfectly content with paying, quote unquote, the man, as long as I believe they're not paying billionaires, they're not paying industries, they're not paying infrastructures, but they're paying individuals that need help. The tagline of this show is Lennox for the rest of us. I really wish government was there for the rest of us and not just for the elitist. Because everything I see, everything I witness says all of the government handouts that have happened have been for the big industries, the big companies, and the big sectors. I know at least three people who still have a really hard time making it from week to week to week. And I do my best as an individual to literally, I'll say it again, walk 50 doors down that way and 50 doors down that way asking them, do you need your grass cut? Do you need subsidence? Do you need goods? Do you need food? Do you need anything? I also reach out to people online and I still work 40 hours a week. The wife still works 40 hours a week. We got quote unquote free money from the government and I'm still poverty stricken because I try to give more out than I give in. And I really hope every individual listening to this podcast tries their damnedest 
to not be self-centered, to not be egotistical, but to try to help everybody in their individual ecosystem in any shape, way, or form they can. Because if it wasn't for the individual, we as a community wouldn't exist. Oh, I wholeheartedly agree. You know, I think that's one of the biggest breakdowns now in our society is we've gotten to the point now where um, we are demonizing the poor or actually I should say more accurately, you know, our politicians are demonizing them. These people have no self-defense. They, they, they are legit living paycheck to paycheck, if even that. And I just don't understand why the view of this country is, um, you know, socialized medicine is a bad thing. There's no way on this earth you could convince me of that. Um, you know, the state, I think we brought it up a couple of weeks back, the state of Massachusetts had such a uh, haul of money from the lotteries. Every town in Massachusetts got a minimum, a minimum of $40 million. Mass, uh, Boston, yep. Springfield, and Worcester got $128 million apiece. With that kind of money, are you telling me that we couldn't at least siphon some of the lottery money to place major hospitals in each of the large cities and making that just simply free for the folks that can't afford it? Because i got to tell you, once you go out to Western Mass, there is a ton of poor yeah, out there. Yeah, I've spoken to, I want to say two people, it might be one, two people in Western Mass who experience the actual poverty that exists um again but not lucky because luck doesn't exist randomness exists in the universe but at the same token you can work towards certain things i've worked my delete expertise off for the last 20 years to not have to rely on luck my children don't have to rely on luck my wife doesn't have to rely on luck they have to rely on me sustaining my nine to five job there's a lot of places in the United States of America where they don't have that luxury. I don't mind giving up what I have to help other people. And I hate to say it like this. I firmly believe, and I might be wrong. God, I hope I'm not wrong. I believe the United States of America will go down in history as the country that has given the most philanthropy which I said wrong, as much as any other country that's ever existed. I looked at ancient Greek, ancient Rome, old France, old Spain, old UK, old China, old Brazilian, old South American, old Russian, old other countries that have ever existed. Nobody ever given as much as America. Philanthropy is what I think makes America I'm sorry to use this word, great. That's what makes America great, is with the fact that we give as much as we give. And I have no problem in giving 30 to 50% of my income to somebody else if it makes them happy, because my kids and my wife are already spoiled rotten. They don't need as much as I earn. And everybody I know who lives in this country agrees they make more than they need. So I'm guessing at this point, would it be too much of a uh, a uh, left turn if we started to go back to some of these articles? We can. Uh, but... 
with that, I I didn't mean to go off too far off topic, but uh, you know what? It's my job to sort of bring us back. Uh, I started it. I'll end it. Um, Pulse Audio. So one of the interesting things that you put in here was uh, how you can turn our uh, computer into Bluetooth speakers for your phone. That I didn't realize. And I think sometimes Bluetooth is probably really underutilized. There are a lot of great things you could do with it. Well, I'll say there are more than a couple of people out there that hate, that literally hate, and I don't use that word lightly, hate on Bluetooth audio. I'll tell you this right now. Bluetooth is one of the most diversely functional stacks we've ever had on any Linux distribution. Using this thing on reddit.com, you can literally turn virtually any Linux device into a Bluetooth speaker of audio. So I can have my phone pronounce itself as a Bluetooth device and then have my phone say, or, or my desktop computer say, it's a receiving Bluetooth audio device. So I can literally say, okay, Schmoogle, play the news, and then have it come across my laptop device. I played with this for at least 20 minutes, and I was shocked how easy it was for me to get everything to work. Uh, the people out there that hate Pulse Audio, I respect you because you have certain ideals. Me, being a user, I love Pulse Audio. Everything I've ever done, everything I've ever tried, everything I've ever done with audio has been unbelievably easier thanks to Pulse Audio. So the people out there that say Pulse Audio sucks, I respect you, but I don't think you actually use audio stacks. For the normal person out there, Pulse Audio is the way you can get anything to work on any distribution unless you're deriving KDE-based distribution. Well, one of the best parts about it is that uh, we've been using PAUV control to solve some of our out-of-the-box issues. And, you know, it's funny because uh, every once in a while we do have some uh, some hardware mix-ups. But also, as uh, you had pointed out earlier this this evening, there's also an order of operations, which I'm glad uh, we seem to have sorted out pretty quickly. So uh, it allows me to get my act together a little bit quicker. Um, just above that one, that article was also another Pulse Audio um, article that was talking about the other features, um, as you'd mentioned, probably most of which you'll never use, but it does have the ability to play audio through multiple output devices at once. So, again, you know, this is one of the few things that, you know, we've always heard about, but it's nice that there's a lot more to it than just making things yeah. louder. Pulse Audio is one of the things that people in the Linux world feel very polarized about. It's almost like saying the word dramatic pause, Trump. It makes people immediately have a stance, pro or against, pro or against. Same for Pulse Audio. When you say Pulse Audio, a lot of people have a very anti or a very pro stance too. What I will encourage everybody is try not to be as opinionated as you are. And then load a distribution that is more in the middle than yourself. Most Debian distributions are quite PAVU, Pulse Audio Video, agnostic. Most 
KDE distributions are anti-PAVU, most anti-pulse audio video control. 99% of the time, the people I interact with online who are running non-KDE plasma desktop interfaces, when they have any audio issues, I'm able to resolve any audio issues in seconds using Pulse. And I don't mean Pulse is the ultimate solution. What I will say is Pulse surfaces most issues most easily that I've ever seen in any infrastructure that I've dealt with. There are certain things that I will completely acknowledge and say KDE Plasma is sickeningly smooth. But if you're having audio issues in KDE Plasma, you will have a lot of issues. Where in other ecosystems, PAV control will take care of them instantaneously. Nice. Now, above that was uh, an article about uh, the new version of Ubuntu, which is offering the Deepin Linux desktop. Now, interestingly enough, um, would you try such a thing? Well, I'll say it like this. I like the fact that Deepin has done its best to try to keep things competitive, is the word I use, in the Linux desktop. I don't trust any uh, organization. I don't trust any country. I don't trust any organization. But I'll say this. Every Deepin desktop I've ever tried to load and that successfully loaded has been among the best desktop experiences I've ever witnessed in my life. They have such a knack, is the word. They have such a knack in developing an unbelievably really good desktop experience. I don't trust them to be safe. I don't trust them to be secure. But if I my only care is usability, it's really difficult to be deepen. Now, you went down the exact road that I had expected you to. Um, and uh, I think I'll qualify it a little bit further. I don't trust the Chinese government. You know, I, you know, the Chinese people have nothing to do with this. This isn't a racist rant. This is just simply a statement of my perception of a distribution that's created by uh, a country that really doesn't have free citizens. And for this and given all of the other um attacks that you know we see virtually um and just check out the latest verizon reports for that uh i'm always i'm i'm hesitant because you know on one hand i understand that it's very elegant it's very nice very smooth they've perfected the interface for this but when the day is done it just goes back um you know do I trust our country, uh, country's government? <laughs> Not in the slightest. I mean, when the NSA's curtain was pulled back, uh, we were really uncomfortable with what we had long suspected was the answer, but to have it confirmed made it that much worse. In this case, as much as I've heard wonderful things about Deepin, I'll wait for the screenshots. Well, what I'll say is if you trust anything, if you trust anything, 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 if you trust Debian, 
if you trust Ubuntu, if you trust China, if you trust the United States of America, if you trust anything, you're an idiot. Period. Trust is a unbelievably, and I think the correct word is, you sequitur, which means absolute uncertainty. You should not trust anything with absolute certainty. You should trust anything with a certain level of degree. I trust Debian to be a usable desktop in accordance with what I relinquish to be visible to between everybody in everybody that ever existed. Do I trust them to be private? No. Do I trust Ubuntu to be private? No. Do I trust Windows 10 to be private? Excuse me, did you just ask that question? No. Do I trust anything to be completely private? I trust when I communicate to Bruce on independent protocols to be private. I do. But I don't trust independent desktops to be private. I will say this. I enjoy experiencing desktops. Deep is one of the most sexiest desktops I've used in the last four to five years. KDE Plasma is really close to being as usable and functional as usable as sexy as Deepin. After that, the, it extremely drops off really quick because the next usable thing is GNOME. And as far as I'm concerned, GNOME is not usable. It sucks. It's horrible. It's usable. If I had any choice in anything, I would never use GNOME. And then it drops off even ridiculously more to where I would only use i3. And that's how you know it dropped off the end of the earth. Um, I enjoy seeing other ecosystems continuously innovate. I don't care if it's Indonesian. I don't care if it's Middle Eastern. I don't care if it's South American. I don't care if it's Russian. I don't care who is innovating. But when I see people like Deepin innovate, I really do enjoy seeing them innovate. Well, after they're done innovating, should you decide that that is the road you want to go, which you're obviously entitled to, there's another article, Three Anti-Malware Solutions for Linux Systems. So one of the things I suggest is that if you're going to install a new OS or, you know, reinstall, uh, the second thing you should do after the installation is complete is install one of the three that are salute that were um, uh, suggested in the uh, Red Hat site. And uh, let's see, what is it? They brought in, well, let's, let's go to the uh, article. Now, I'd briefly given this a read uh, earlier in the day, um, but one of the things that I had noticed uh, in the past is that, uh, especially ClamAV, where it's being listed here, you really need to install that first after the OS is done installing because one of the things that it has done is that it, if you let any amount of time go by, um, it, it reports a lot of false negatives, so you really want to be careful with that. You want to give your machine a clean profile to work from, and then after you know, Clam AV is on or or the other solutions that they have on there, you know, also go ahead and put up your firewall as well. Um, but again, you know, safe surfing is where you usually take it. Some of these sites are getting better. 
uh, at fishing you, but um, you know, at least as long as you put some of this stuff on, you'll be all set. I guess the question I have for you, Doris, is are you using any of these? Two words. Hell no. And partially because I respect Clean AV implicitly. There's few organizations out there that I trust. I trust Clam AV is doing everything in their power to do everything that they've ever witnessed to protect everybody that's ever existed. But the dirty secret is if you take a look at Clam AV, they don't offer any protection on Linux. Dramatic pause. They only search for Windows infections because Linux infections only happen between once in every three to five years. Clam AV searches for Windows infections and then stops them. So if you are running Clam AV on your email server, you can stop infecting Windows users. You're not protecting any Linux users whatsoever. There are two Linux rootkit applications that you can run that in the last five years, take a look, don't ever trust anything I've ever said. In the last five years, from 2015 to 2020, there's been three rootkits that have existed that have infected Linux ecosystems that these other two ecosystems could detect and proclaim that they found. In the actual reality of anything that's ever existed, you're more likely to stick your genitalia out at the night sky and point at a neutron star that went complete, um, oh, I can't remember the word, but complete went complete explosion. The actual likelihood of you installing any of these three antivirus solutions, the three security solutions on a Linux ecosystem and actually detect anything worthwhile is two. One slim, two to none. Because it really does Linux infrastructure really doesn't get infected on a large scale. But it is possible, it is plausible, and it does happen. Which is why I put this link in the notes. If you run any Linux server that's public facing, I really do encourage you install things like Clam AV because you don't want to infect your mother in law, your brother in law, your father in law, or even people you hate with Windows infections. Clam AV will help stop you from accidentally infecting them, and the other two solutions will help you to detect the un really unlikely Linux rootkits that almost don't happen unless you pick up two dice and roll it in your hands and roll it and it just happens to roll to boxcars 12 and 12 or snake eye snake eye the likelihood of you getting infected with a Linux virus as a Linux administrator in a shape or form is close to slim or none it doesn't mean it doesn't happen I still run these tools myself. I'm not going to lie. I run these tools myself every three to six months. And I do every three to six months for at least the last 12 years. I am really happy they've never once proclaimed that I've been infected. It doesn't mean you shouldn't. No, that's uh, those are good words to live by. 
I'm not going to disclose anything more about my machine, says uh, I choose not to. But the, the fact of the matter is um, I do like some of these options for uh, the average person who's confused about these kind of things. So uh, it's a good article just the same. And, you know, Red Hat puts it out, and I give them props for doing uh, their due diligence on this. So uh, that and, you know, actually just spend some time and learn IP tables or SE Linux. I will say I have really harsh feelings on SE Linux. I know I'm not the extreme smart person. We did have another email that I can't find from Alfonso. And what he stated was he really wished we would give more of an honest opinion on open hardware. And I'll say it like this. Open hardware has been being open because it costs a lot of money. To be truly open hardware and relinquish open hardware to the public world means I have to pay like $2,000 for a motherboard. I have to pay $4,000 for a laptop. Thus, most open hardware projects are not successful. It doesn't mean they won't be successful. It just means they have a really hard time being successful. Well, for me, I think what I would like to see is that um, there should be a, um, a, statute, a statute of limitations. Uh, I would think that once a uh, machine has either gone out of production or is no longer considered a um, you know viable hardware product, I think that would be an opportunity where you would open source the hardware and make it available to be hacked. That way you have things like five, ten-year-old tablets that you can use, continue to use. You can hack phones and still make them usable and reduce uh, overall uh, um, e-waste. That's really the key here. I mean, if we genuinely care about our environment, I think we would aim to do just that. Sorry, Brother Bruce. No, no, it's all good. So I guess the last of it is, what do you take away from the draft? Well, first off, I'll say this. If you want to know what Podnuts think about sports, then you should listen to podnuts.com slash The Revolving Door. It's a podcast where I try to review every podcast I listen to, and one of them is Sports Nuts. Uh, sports was a podcast that was brought to you by two Ah, uh, I'm not going to lie. Two of the five or six people that I respect the most, uh, Tracy Holt and Bruce Patterson, where they went over all kinds of sports topics. Uh, if you ask me what's the most important thing about the draft right now, I'll say I don't care. Um, I'm more interested in how my family is doing, how my kids are doing, how my other important people are doing, but this. I do believe sports is going to play a unbelievably important role in a lot of people's perspective in the next 18 to 16 months. And I do believe it's going to be one of those things. It's going to take months. But this draft that's happened for the NFL will become one of the most important drafts that have ever happened in the history of the NFL because it's the most impactful draft that I think we've seen. I am so 
so happy that Tom Brady left those Patriots. I'm incredibly interested to what the Patriots staff is going to do. I'm also most intrigued at what the rest of the entire sports league is going to do now that the guy that insists that he that he understands like how to cure people from incredible distraught off of this incredibly vague this thing that he can make people ingest and make them cure he's an idiot tom brady is obviously like a pseudoscientist who believes that ah some scrap but i'm unbelievably interested in how the league is going to go in the next 12 18 months if it doesn't go bankrupt first <laughs> oh they have enough money they have enough money to do this crap for the next two to three years. If Vince McMahon has enough money to proclaim his wrestling establishment can last like 12 to 14 months, the NFL has enough money to where they can do this for at least another two to three years. Well, they are, after all, my exactly. favorite nonprofit. If anyone doesn't understand, the American National Football League is technically classified as a nonprofit organization. And if you have no idea what that means, I beg you to look for yourself and understand that these people that make billions of dollars a year say they make no money and they give it all away. Hence, the NFL. And I don't hear anything from you, Bruce. I'll say it like this. I thank everyone for their support. Anyone who doesn't support us, go to hell. Go to hell in a dirty, disgusting handbacket. And if you don't like me, if you don't like Bruce, if you don't like what we say, go to hell. 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 Don't communicate. If you like what Bruce says, if you like what I say, if you like what people like Jonathan they do say, if you like what things that people who respect open source ideals say, then I absolutely beg you to communicate with me. If you're a dirty troll, don't ever communicate with me because I will find where you live, I will show up to your door, and I will beat the living crap out of you whenever it is okay for me to do so. So, I'll say, Bruce, do you have any parting words to tell anybody? That is some kind of finale. It's the, truth. it's the truth as I see it. And if you don't see it like that, then I don't care what you think, what you feel, what you believe, or what anything else. Because my perspective is reality. Guys like Bruce Patterson, guys like Josh Williams, guys like Jonathan Du, guys like... Oh, there's so many people out there who I firmly agree with. Guys like myself, if you feel like you know Linux, if you feel like you understand this open source ideal, if you feel like you understand what makes Linux Linux, if you feel like you understand what makes Linux a obtainable things, don't hesitate. Shoot us an email, podcast at Linux or the rest of us .com. Don't hesitate. Shoot us a voicemail at 706 Podnuts. Get that the voicemail number. If you're a dirty, disgusting troll, go ahead, send us an email. I won't even reply because I'm a mature adult and I can differentiate between a genuine feedback and some jerk trying to send us some 
procrastinatingly, unbelievably obscure social justice content. And with that, I'll say, Bruce, it's really good to talk to you. How are you feeling? I'm feeling pretty good. Probably not as good as you are, but hey, you know, it's always it's it always a good show, thank though. Thank you for coming out. I thank you for your support. I thank everybody for their support. And never, ever, ever forget, Linux is never for the elitist. Linux is never, ever for the industrialist. Linux is never, ever for the entrepreneur. Because Linux is for the rest of us. And if you have any questions, do not hesitate. Shoot them my way, and I'll do everything in my power to try to help you out. If you try to shoot me an email with an opinion, it might not be great. So thank you, everyone. I'll talk to you again in about a week.